there. Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's interview guest is Amelia Lopez, a terrific LA-based writer, editor, and podcaster for Footmex Nation and the Mexican Soccer Show. We've had some great interview guests lately, including Adam Bells, Jim Curtin, and Musa Okwanga, along with many others. So check those interviews out. It would be huge for this podcast growth if you could subscribe, recommend us to your friends, and take just a little time to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. We've had some really nice reviews there lately. We'll have Amelia Lopez on soon here, but let's start with some talk about the soccer weekend with my friend Chris Whittingham of the Chelsea Miked Up podcast. He also produces this show. Chris, thanks for joining me. How are you? Thanks for having me, Grant. Excited to do it. Yeah, like I want to start just by saying a few more things about our friend Daryl Grove, whom we lost uh, tragically on Thursday to cancer. If you've been following the show recently, uh, I've had a few moments uh, to, to pay tribute to Daryl. Uh, just uh, a, a terrific guy who's had a huge impact on the soccer community in the United States with his Total Soccer Show podcast with Taylor Rockwell. If you listen to this podcast, you know that both those guys have appeared regularly on our show this year. I think Daryl's last uh, show on on this one, ours, was July 22nd. I went back and and listened to it again a couple nights ago, and you know, it wasn't something that stood out in any particular way, but it was just a, a really fun conversation with someone who really cared about the sport and was fun to talk about the sport with and a little bit like improv like always wanted to set you up so that you could look good in what you were saying as well and just want to send uh, uh, positive thoughts and vibes to Taylor Rockwell who uh, has dealt with this in a very sort of public way And, and I know this has been extremely difficult for him and he actually texted me on Saturday morning asking me if I was doing okay. And I told him, I'll, I'll, I'll make it. I'm hanging in. Uh, but it's pretty amazing that you're asking me how I'm doing uh, when you're the one who uh, has gone through so much with all of this. But you had tweeted something, Chris, um, that stood out to me about just listening to Taylor's posts in the last week and the meaning of friendship and how that stood out to you and and uh that really resonated with me and and i was just wondering what your thoughts were yeah i mean i I, it is somewhat through a selfish prism because i do a podcast with someone who is a very close friend of mine chelsea mike up i do with mike ryan ruiz and we are very good friends and i couldn't imagine having to publicly go through that and in some ways, their podcast, which I was also a fan of, but I was more a fan of the podcast. I've never, never, never met them. I don't know them. And so my only relationship with their work is through their podcast. And their enduring friendship lived on through every episode. They knew the beats of every joke that they were going to do. And when Taylor comes on, and you can tell he's fighting through tears. He's fighting through the emotions that he's feeling. And it's very difficult for us as men sometimes to express these thoughts of love for another man, right? He clearly, Taylor loved his friend Daryl. And I think that very intimate nature of podcasting is something that I love about this medium, right? That you can become a fan of a show and feel like these two people are your friends and you understand their friendship through the content that they produce. And that for me was kind of the enduring feeling, which is that, you know, I, I hope, I wish that I could eulogize and talk about my best friend in the way that Taylor Rockwell did. It was something that actually brought tears to my eyes. And I didn't think it would. Like, Grant, you obviously have a personal relationship with these two guys and with their their kind of extended families, but I didn't. And so I, I didn't think it would hit me emotionally in quite the same way, but the, the words that he spoke um, were so profound to me that like, it moved me emotionally. Yeah, I think that's something that a lot of the American soccer community feels right now and and people who've you know, listened regularly to Total Soccer Show over the years and, and those two guys. So, um, you know, it's just something... Uh, I'm thinking of Taylor, thinking of Daryl, uh, thinking of everyone who's close to them right now. Uh, not easy to transition into soccer talk, but we're going to try it anyway. Um, El Clasico was 
Saturday morning at Barcelona. Barcelona 1, Real Madrid 3. And I actually went to see this game here in New York City. They were showing it at Hudson Yards in a outdoor, socially distant setting. It was really cool um, to to do that. I had some friends uh, come and and uh, and we watched this game. Two goals very early, and you're like, oh, one one. It's going to be a shootout. Not quite the case. Um, but in the end, Real Madrid gets the win at its arch rival and really needed the win, having had two bad losses uh, earlier in the week in Champions League and then in La Liga. And now the discussion goes back to, are the wheels falling off still at Barcelona? What's your answer to that? Well, it's funny because the loser of this game was going to have a are the wheels falling off conversation, <laughs> right? It's just the very, I, I was really annoyed actually on behalf of Zinedine Zidane that there was a conversation about Zinedine Zidane possibly getting fired if he lost this Clasico. And look, uh, a loss to Cadiz in, in the in La Liga, not good. A loss to Shakhtar Reserves, not good. But, I mean, what does Zinedine Zidane have to do? I mean, he just won the league in one of the most impressive kind of campaigns of 10 to 12 games to, to lock up a league title. Uh, and that was a couple of months ago. Like, what are we talking about? Um, I think what you see is an obvious lack of show-stopping performers in both of these teams. I actually think the intentionality and the quality of the play was exceptional, but you are used to seeing in these kinds of games, these titanic moments from titanic players. This is where the very best players in the world go, and I don't think really either team had that on enormous display. Obviously, the penalty decision is massive. I thought it was a penalty. I don't think you can have that much of a hold of the shirt on Sergio Ramos and get away with it. Uh, It was probably the correct decision for me, but I, I do think that there is a sense with both of these clubs, given, as we said, that both of them are kind of in peril of being in a crisis. It was funny because I googled Real Madrid crisis just to see. And of course, there's headlines in Spain, Real Madrid crisis. But um, I think these two clubs are always on the brink of it because they are not actually what reputationally they have been in the last 10 years. It's funny because crisis is also crisis in, right. in Spanish. So I'm sure you'd have plenty of instances <laughs> yeah, pop up results, in yeah. a Twitter search for that. Uh, weird game for me more than anything, because this was 1-1. Early in the second half, Barcelona created a ton of scoring chances and could not convert. Phil Coutinho, heads wide, doesn't even get it on frame on one of them. Ansu Fadi, I thought, had a pretty big influence on this game, at least through that point of it. And they just couldn't finish. And at that point, things turned. The penalty happens. And I agree with you that it, you know, he grabbed Ramos's shirt, okay? Like, that's that's a penalty. But I almost wanted Ramos to be punished somehow for the embellishment where he literally falls in the other direction (laughs) theatrically from the direction in which his shirt was pulled. And you're like, that defies the laws of physics. (laughs) Pure Sergio Ramos. Yeah. But like ends up getting the call and, and, you know, he's great at taking penalties. Of course he converts it. He's scored a hundred goals now for Madrid, which is absurd. I, I was hoping the VAR would announce like, we would have given this a penalty, but it was such bad embellishment by Ramos that we're not going to give it, or or we're going to give the penalty, but we're going to give him a yellow card for embellishing. <laughs> like, of course, that wouldn't happen. Um, and, and then I was just really disappointed at that point with Barcelona because it seemed like they kind of gave up. Like, they didn't do much the rest of the way. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of what Barcelona is always on the brink of because of the emotional state of the team, right? It's not a team that really seems like it's going to rally around a cause right now and go for it. It really felt like if Barcelona was going to win that game, they had to do it in the 20 minutes before that penalty was given when, as you said, they were well on top. A couple of Ramos-related things. One, I forget if it was Phil Shane or Ray Hudson in commentary, but one of them noted that he might be the best penalty taker in the world. And I was like, really? So I went to his transfer mark page and looked up his open play penalties. He's 29 of 32 from the spot. That's a remarkable record. I think the average is 77%. So Sergio Ramos, best penalty taker in the world. I I wouldn't have thought. And obviously as a center back, you generally don't associate it with it. But the other thing, and I'm going to contradict myself a little bit, uh, which is that on the VAR, it does seem like now 
when they go when the referee goes to the monitor, they're basically given the slow motion fragment of the play that they want the referee to see. And it's almost contaminating the jury pool a little bit. I kind of wish that you could look at a play in its totality in real time that and then kind of marry it with the slow motion pictures. Because I think maybe in real time, you do look at it and go, well, he's jumping the wrong way. Whereas they're kind of like focusing on the shirt pull as opposed to the fact that, you know, Sergio Ramos clearly uh, uh, attempted this flop. Again, I think anytime I, I now I think anytime you see an extended shirt pull, anytime you see the ball even somewhat strike an arm, penalties are going to be awarded. That's just kind of my assumption now in the VAR, VAR era. But as you said, a little bit of subjectivity and kind of the assessment of intentionality uh, would have been useful there. I do think in MLS we've seen them run real-time video when the referee goes over in addition to slow-mo, which I think is important. I didn't get a close enough look at what they'd actually show the referee in in Spain, but um, I do think it's important to look at real-time action because slow motion is not the way the world works, you know? And and sometimes I think gives you an unnatural viewpoint of of things and and how they transpire. But... um, it is interesting, like, you talk about penalties and the success that Sergio Ramos has had. Like, that's impressive the more penalties you take because Bruno Fernandez, for example, was terrific on his little hop penalties that he takes for Man United. But it seems like now that, like, he's been figured out and he's actually mm-hmm. failed to convert quite a few times recently. So, you know, whatever Sergio Ramos is doing to take his penalties... Uh, keep doing it, man, because that's uh, a, a pretty useful thing, especially for a center back to to be able to do that. Um, like one other question before we move on to the Premier League is just on Serginho Dest. So American starts El Clasico. Some people said they thought he was Barcelona's best player. I didn't think so. I I, I thought Messi and, and Ansu Fati were were slightly better overall in this game, but. Given what Dest had to deal with, which was Vinicius Jr. going coming to, you know down his throat and trying to get forward occasionally, which he did do occasionally, not bad at all for the for the young American. I agree with your assessment that Fatih and Messi were better on the day, but I thought Andres Cordero being sports put it really well, which was that at no point could you really tell that he was the American playing in El Clasico, right? That he was the 19-year-old who didn't know what he was doing. Everything was under control, right? I think part of that is playing for a coach who would make him really comfortable in the system, given that probably Sergio Dest has played in systems similar to Ronald Koeman's his entire life, having played in Holland. And so I do think there's that kind of sense of comfort you would imagine there. But also, every movement was intentional. Every pass was under control. At no point did the game seem too big for him. I don't think he had any kind of big, impactful moments. But in terms of what you want out of your right back, and I, I and I think, you know, the Barcelona fullback position, I mean, in the tradition of Jordi Alba and Dani Alves, usually includes an attacking component. I don't think Dest really provided that much, but in terms of keeping the play going, keeping everything solid, at no point did he look uh, kind of out of it. And look, Grant, I mean, you've been covering this game for a long time. If I said to you 20 years ago, there's an American playing in El Clasico, we would have had a freak out. I think in some ways we kind of become numb to these sort of things just because of the slew of different American players that are playing in Champions League games. But I mean, I, I, I was watching it. I still couldn't believe it. I know he's dual national. It's not quite the same as an MLS homegrown. But still, I mean, this is an American national teamer playing in El Clasico, right? He's one of the, the, the 22 players. It's one of, I think, 42 countries that have been represented in the game. It's incredible. It's pretty great. And I think people may not fully understand the context of Dest coming in and and being a central figure in El Clasico for Barcelona, it's not like he was starting every game for Ajax, mm-hmm. you know? And this is a guy who I think Barcelona has sort of thrown him into the fire here, and they're going to give him every opportunity to succeed based on how much money they paid for him and the fact that they don't really have other great options at right back. But... Barcelona's finding out right now is like, is this kid going to hack it? And the answer, at least on this weekend, was not bad. And in the current European economy, 
this is probably what they could afford, right? And I think they were probably trying to be a year early rather than he starts every game for Ajax this season. They beat VVV Venlo 13-0, and Sergio Dest has three assists in that performance, and all of a sudden his value goes up. This was probably the time to make a sign like this. And Barcelona, given their economic environment, I was you know researching them a little bit before the Clasico, and you know it came out that they had close to 500 million euros in debt, and it's going to get worse uh, because of COVID. And I would have to imagine they're going to have to find some value, some players that they hit on early that can be key members of their squad. So they took a risk in Dest, which I think also Juventus took a risk on McKenney for this exact reason, because you're probably not going to get talented youngsters for, you know, 20 million euros in that realm in other, you know, economic environments. So you take a risk on uh, a, a player like these two guys. So I think the fact that Dest was, you know, picked out probably by Kuman as well, just like, hey, you know, we're putting you in this terrible situation. Let's at least give you someone who you want to work with who might have a future even if you're gone after this season. Uh, I, it's incredible to me that he's taken advantage of this opportunity, as you said, might feature more regularly for Barcelona than he did for Ajax. True. I, one last thing on this. We had the official announcement finally this week that the U.S. men's national team will finally play a game with close to a full-strength uh, squad Mostly, you're not. I, I'm not expecting any MLS guys to go over for these games in Europe, but this is going to be against Wales on November 12th, and just to get all the European-based guys together uh, would be great. Uh, I know Tyler Adams did pick up uh, an injury this past week that kept him from playing over the weekend for Leipzig, so we'll have to see how serious that is. I saw it was uh, MCL was reported, so that kind of worries you, but. Um, you know, to see Dest and all those guys get together would be, it's something I think U.S. fans have been waiting a long time for. Um, I want to move to the Premier League. Um, and what's interesting to me right now about the Premier League is we're about six games in for most teams, not all of them, but it is wide open as of right now. And if you look at the so-called big six, Liverpool is in second place. Chelsea is in ninth place. Arsenal in 10th place, Spurs in 11th, Man City in 13th, and Man United in 15th. And that could change, obviously. But, you know, six match days in, we're starting to get an indication that we're not going to see any team with the high 90s points levels that we've seen in recent years from Liverpool and Man City. We might see a real race for the title, and potentially we might see some totally unexpected teams hanging around for a while near the top of the table. How do you feel about all this? Well, it's funny because when the scores came in that Everton was 2-0 down against Southampton, I looked at the table just to see what it would look like after they lost, and they were still in first. <laughs> they were still in first in the live table, and Liverpool, uh, the two Liverpool sides, are, are, are in the top two. And that just goes to show that there just isn't that strength. And I think it's also backed up by watching the games, right? And and I, I don't mean to be eye test guy, but if you look beyond the table and the performances, right? I think Chelsea have at least figured out from a defensive point of view uh, how they can be a bit more solid and Mendy has played a huge role in that. But, you know, they, they've fixed their defense, but now their attack doesn't look so strong. Uh, then, you know, Manchester United is so inconsistent. You can't trust them week to week. Arsenal today losing to Leicester, recording this on Sunday. And I thought, you know, Arsenal could hardly create anything. Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang hasn't done anything since the second game of the season. Their attack looks putrid right now. Uh, Tottenham, I actually think, could probably probably be the second best team in the league in my opinion just because of how well Kane and Son are playing but then they blew a 3-0 lead uh, to West Ham and and maybe their results uh, will be inconsistent again they're kind of always a dark patch around the corner you go up and down the so-called big six and I still think Liverpool is really the only one that gives you kind of a consistent six or seven out of ten even without Van Dyke. so uh, I would still kind of keep them as my favorites to win the league but I think this feels like the Leicester won the league season because it wasn't just that Leicester won the league it was that Every team in the so-called Big Six had a down year, right? And and Spurs, you know, look back on that season as their chance gone, right? That was their chance to win the title, and they couldn't do it. But I, it just doesn't feel like there's any particular strength. And hell, maybe Everton can win the league. And and and, and you would think that that was crazy to say, and it might still be. But given how open and how I think low the standard is going to be of a title winner this year, I think it's possible. It is, and. Yeah, for me, like, you're totally right about all of these big six teams. Man City is also just disappointing yes. to me. I feel like they're not at the level they were in the last few years, you know, especially sort of the 2017 to 2019 stretch. 
And um, I guess we'll see if they can get it going again. looks like Aguero might be hurt again. Um, but that team just doesn't look like it has before. Um, and there's something about each one of these big six teams that's either a worry, a concern, or something like that. And I, I mean, I don't have a dog in this, but like, I, I just feel like from a neutral's perspective, this can make the Premier League even more interesting this season. And you're also going to see some very inconsistent results week to week. You're going to look at the fixtures and go, all right, well, maybe that one there and that one there. I would kind of like bet on underdogs and, and look at, you know, kind of the crazier results being possible because that's what we've seen so far this season. Even when you look at the score lines, right? I mean, you have uh, the incredible Villa-Liverpool result, the Spurs-Man United result, the Man City-Leicester result. I totally agree with your point about Man City. City, by the way, just, you know, I've, I, you know, you watch pep teams and what it's supposed to look like. You can tell usually in the, right. the first 10 minutes, the zip and the passing and the movement and all that stuff, just not there. And so without any of these teams demonstrating strength, you can really see a, a potential for dropped results every weekend for things that defy your expectations. And I think that's just what this Premier League season is going to be. Maybe if at some point fans can come back, that'll change the dynamic. But I do think, and I think empty stadiums play a role in this. And as long as that continues, you will see a wild and crazy Premier League this year. Yeah. And I also think, and I'm not happy to say this, I think we're going to see some more injuries, especially because every team is in, in the big six teams are playing so many games right now because we're in a stretch of three straight weeks of Champions League midweek, followed by two weeks of the international window, followed by three straight more weeks of the Champions League group stage. So I think there's going to be some injuries that pop up maybe more than even typically at this time of year. Um, And just the sort of wide open nature of things is a good way to transition into MLS, which uh, has a lot of parity in its league. Though (laughs) we did see number one play number two, on Saturday night, Philadelphia obliterating Toronto 5-0 in Philadelphia. Toronto not totally full strength, but they still had a lot of their top guys out there. And this game just got out of hand in the second half. Philadelphia with a tremendous performance, a hat trick for Santos. And interestingly, the supporters' shield, they go into first place just ahead of Toronto uh, with, uh, I think, three match days left here. Obviously, so much chaos due to COVID in the MLS schedule this season, but the supporter shield will still be in play because a week after the, uh, the supporters council foundation announced that they were not going to award it because they didn't feel it was appropriate given all of the uh, inequalities, I guess, in the schedule, they got a lot of negative feedback, including from, coaches and players in the league, particularly up in Toronto, but in a few other places as well. And they, to their credit, in my opinion, reversed course and said, look, we're going to have the supporter shield. We listen to everybody. And so we will have this trophy. Um, and I was, I, I'm wondering how you feel about that. I'm wondering mm-hmm. what you thought of Philadelphia. Well, as it relates to the supporter shield decision, I always think it's fascinating when unconventional decisions get made because you knew that there was probably a group of people within the council, whoever was deciding it, that thought that this was a great idea, right? I mean, how can we give a supporter shield when there are no supporters, right? And they're throwing this around and then all of a sudden it meets the establishment, right? As you mentioned, players and, and coaches and staff and, and people on Twitter that are going, wait, what? And, and I think like it probably went from an idea that somebody really liked to all of a sudden being absolutely destroyed and, and given against. And look, I, I, we talked about it last week. I was fine either way, uh, whether or not, you know, if, if you decide this is called the Supporter Shield and a season in which a very limited number of supporters have had the chance to go, I would get it. But also, given the amount of work that all these players and the league and the staff and everyone has put in and at sometimes putting their health at risk in order to get this season off... I also understand wanting to have a reward for either Philadelphia or Toronto FC. So I kind of got it from both perspectives, and I'm kind of glad that the stakeholders in the game were able to have a real conversation about this. As it relates to Philadelphia, I've, I saw them beat Inter-Miami soundly, and I've, I've obviously watched you know more than a few of their games since as well. I, I just, I love their style of play. It's obviously the very German 4-4-2 slash 4-2-2-2 um, in terms of pressing and really 
always looking, at, and, I, and I spotted this as well watching Red Bull Salzburg under Jesse Marsh, just always looking to play that through ball, getting four numbers on that edge of the 18-yard box and looking to find that pass in behind and really seeking out and searching out easy goals. That, for me, is kind of the hallmark of watching them play. Yes, Anthony Fontana and Brendan Aronson have scored some ridiculous goals, but their chance creation mechanism, and I always talk about that as it relates to quality teams, is really good. And it really is an example of there is no excuse in this league for Vancouver, for FC Cincinnati, for Montreal, whoever you consider to be the lower market teams. Philadelphia, despite being in a big market, operates like a small market team. And you can use the efficiencies of Major League Soccer, right, which Ernst Tanner has come in and done, but also, you know, connected to his network around the world in terms of scouting and figure out how to piece together an MLS team that understands the identity of the league, right? And I think that's what you see from a lot of players, that are a lot of front office staff that come in from abroad. They just don't understand how this league works. And credit to Ernst Tanner because he's come in and kind of moneyballed his way towards his success. And it's not just about their points tally. It's their goal difference is plus 22, which is 14 goals better than Toronto's. Uh, you know, they have strength in areas. The question is always, do you have enough of that top-end strength without the clear DP to win in the postseason? But I love their model and what they've done and their approach. Yeah, I, I was really glad we got Jim Curtin on the podcast last mm -hmm. week just to talk in some detail about how they've approached things because you hear him talk about it and then you see it against Toronto and everything comes together. But so many of the guys on the field, yet some older veteran types like uh, Alejandro Bedoya, who's still bringing a lot for that team. Uh, you've got the young guys like Brendan Aronson, like Mark McKenzie. McKenzie scored again the other night, uh, second goal in a couple of weeks. Um, and... You know, just reliable guys like Andre Blake and Goal. Uh, you can bring on Ilsenio, another Wiley veteran. Um, you know, Santos was terrific finishing against Toronto. And so uh, really fun to watch them play. And, and I posted on Twitter, uh, there's this famous clip, a gif of Andrew Wenger when he was with Philadelphia on a break and like he, he <laughs> dribbles with no pressure over the end line. And yeah. it sort of became the symbolic gif of Philadelphia union history. And then there's this fan, this anguished Philadelphia union fan <laughs> who responds to it and they show it in the gif just by cursing life. And I'd like to think that right now that that anguished Philadelphia union fan is somewhere watching this team and, and really taking satisfaction because I hope he is. What's funny is that uh, when I prep for games, particularly when I was doing the national broadcast for Through the NA, I would always try and find fan podcasts of each team. And I did a Philadelphia Union-DC United match for Through the NA, I think 20, uh, 2017, maybe 2018. And I, I kid you not, it sounded like a funeral. I think they just come off a draw. <laughs> and they were so depressed. Philadelphia Union fans before the last two or three seasons sounded so depressed about the state of their team. I, I don't believe they won a playoff game until last year, which was their 10th season in the league. Uh, it's just been a organization that has not been particularly spent on, although, you know, they built up their academy and credit to them. Uh, but finally, they're well run. They had not been, on top of not having the money, they weren't well run. It's just like the ultimate disaster in terms of, you know, trying to, trying to you know, begin your way in Major League Soccer. And they kind of, I think, have lost their chance in terms of relevance. Hopefully, you know, finishing top of the East and going on a playoff run here uh, can get some fans interested in Philadelphia Union. But uh, you're right. I mean, I think there have been some moments that, that franchise is kind of low-key been pretty depressing in their major league soccer history uh that gif including <laughs> well we're gonna wrap up here um we got Amelia lopez coming on in a second we recorded with her and she's based in la before uh the sunday el trafico which lafc beat la galaxy 2-0 curious to see if the last place Galaxy make any coaching changes or anything else like that. Chicharito wasn't even available in this game. They said he was injured, but I don't know if that injury was in quotes. Um, Chris, really appreciate you coming on the show. It's always fun to talk to you. Thanks, Grant. Now, here's my interview with Amelia Lopez. Our guest now is Amelia Lopez. She's a Los Angeles-based writer, editor, and podcaster for Footmex Nation and the Mexican Soccer Show. The last podcast she and I did together was during World Cup 2018 when we were both in Moscow. Amelia, thanks for coming on the show. Hi, Grant. Thank you so much for having me again. So nice to talk to you. I feel like it's been a long time. I know we obviously interact on Twitter, but 
it's it's nice to to be on the podcast again. It's always a good time to talk to you. Yeah, it's great to have you on. And there's lots to catch up on. And and later on, we'll get sort of into your story, um, including coming out of USC's Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism. But you're in LA. So let's start with LAFC and the LA Galaxy. Uh, we're recording this on Saturday. The two teams play each other again on Sunday. But it's been a strange season for both teams. The Galaxy is in last place in the Western Conference, and Chicharito Hernandez has gone from being the biggest signing of the MLS offseason to an absolute no-show for the Galaxy. Why do you think this has gone so wrong for Chicharito? I don't even want to use it as an excuse because I don't think it's an excuse. It's just 2020 has been so weird. You know what I mean? But even if you look at, I guess, pre-pandemic, it wasn't going so great. Those first, you know, two games before everything happened. Um, And then COVID did happen and there was that whole break and he he looked out of shape during the MLS's back tournament. I mean, he only played one game and then he was gone. But it has been really... um, and I I say this as a specifically as someone who's followed the Mexican national team for as long as I have, um, because I know that there's other, you know, well-respected journalists and stuff that cover the LA Galaxy that do use this as a point. You know, you don't become Mexico's all-time leading goal scorer for nothing, and 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 that is a valid thing to say. But I think as somebody who actually followed the national team, right, it hits that much more because you're like, no, this is the guy that. You know, I was at the game when he broke the record and we had a tweet out, you know, a celebratory um, tweet for him. And to just see it kind of crumble so fast is it, it, there's so many factors too to it. You know, um, is it just him? Is it the team? You know, because Galaxy as a whole, you just said it dead last. So it's not just him specifically. But whenever you see him have a chance, you know, I think the last game Pavone gave him a really great ball from the right hand side and he just skyrocketed just right in front of the goal. At, you know, a sitter, kind of what he does, you know, as a poacher, that was a that was his goal. And it just com- he completely missed the opportunity. Um, I think it really encapsulated just like what we're dealing with watching him, you know, whether you're a national team um, follower for decades or just a Galaxy fan who was kind of skeptical um, with all these big questionable big signings that the team has made over the last couple of years. Um, it's it's just been hard and there's no there's no actual clear cut answer, you know, because sometimes he puts effort in. Sometimes you think he wants it. And then sometimes it's it, it just doesn't seem like it's clicking. Um, so it has been, as uh, I can say, it's been very difficult to watch, uh, not, both as a Galaxy, uh, you know, follower, and then it just specifically as a national team, um, like kind of, you know, journalist that's covered the team as well. I mean, I'm really surprised by it. I spent a lot of time with Chicharito for my book. He has a chapter in it um, and got to know him and, and, you know, get a sense of how he approaches playing the sport. And... It's just something I didn't expect. He's got a a multi-year contract, obviously, with the Galaxy. Do you think this is a situation where they should just write off this season and he should come back in 2021 and get a chance to kind of start over again? Or has it gotten to the point where maybe he should be loaned out to Chivas or like like this isn't going to work with the galaxy. I mean, first off, when I saw that rumor, I was kind of just like, where is this coming from? It, it, I, <laughs> I, at this point, you know, Chivas fans don't even want him. Chivas fans are kind of dealing with their own um, drama over there with Oribe Peralta. You know, that's it. They've had really questionable, like, why are you bringing this person along? And I think the other emotional aspect about that Chivas rumor is that, you know, Chivas fans have such a, positive tie to him this is the this is the player that moved on to Man U you know and it, and just ended up being this you know wonder kid of a of a player so to bring him back and in this type of situation he's in right now where he's not scoring goals for Galaxy I th- I think that there's that emotional aspect too and because of that fact I don't think any team would really want him right now. What I think, you know, so I think I was listening to the Corner of the Galaxy pod yesterday and I think it was Josh who perfectly said it. You know, if you don't want him, what makes you think anybody else is going to want him right now? You know, so it's he's in a really um, fortunate situation where I think as a whole, the Galaxy needs to start looking and making tough decisions, not just with him, but just overall, you know, because of what's been happening these last couple of years. Um, but yeah, just in terms of that question specifically, I, I don't 
I don't think you can get rid of him just yet. I, I think that that'll make Galaxy as an organization look really bad. Um, and then it is it is 2020 in a sense. So you you kind of do have to kind of write this season off and then see um, how he does um, later on for next season. Well, the Galaxy is also on the hook for $6 million salary per yeah. year with him. And like for someone else to take him at any salary close to that, I think might be a really hard sell. So I think that's a good point. Um, in terms of like the coach, Scalotto, or even... Dennis Tecloza or even Chris Klein, like, is like who should be worried about their job right now with the Galaxy? In your opinion, all of them. I think all of them at this point. I don't think anybody. Uh, you know, I ha unfortunately because of COVID haven't been able to go to the games, um, even with their parameters. Um, you know, and the social distancing that they've been able to do for journalists. Um, but the fact that they were at the game, the last game, I think it was um, Chris Klein and Beckerman, it says a lot, right? They don't just go to games um, to to just go to them. So it, I think everybody at this point is really feeling it. And to kind of go back to what you were saying about that high price tag, you know, they just dealt with getting rid of Gio um, and buying him out. So yeah, another, and then, yeah, it's another Mexican player, if you want to put it that way. So to kind of have to deal with that again, um, you know, just would make them look really bad. So I think everybody is is on the hook. I think Klein more than anybody else is online. You see people really upset with him. Um, you know, then as a Klaus, I really liked him as a national team um, staff member. And, you know, I was really excited to see him come over here to LA. Um, for I mean, for what he's done for, for the youth has been really good, but just to, not to see it click um, you know, for the senior squad hasn't been good. And, you know, for, for Scalotto, it's, it's been disheartening to not really see anything from him in terms of not really mad, not really sad. Sometimes he is assertive when he talks, you know, post-game press conferences about them losing or what's going on. But um, it, it's just a lot of question marks, I think, that, that everybody's feeling about what, what's the plan and what's going to happen. Um, where deservedly, I think everybody's kind of in the hot seat right now. It's still fascinating to me that when LAFC started, they actually wanted to have Scalotto be their first coach, and he was the priority ahead of Bob Bradley, and they didn't get Scalotto from Boca Juniors that year, end up signing Bob Bradley, and now my guess is that LAFC fans would not trade in the world Bob Bradley for Scalotto. That said... LAFC's had kind of a strange season, too. And, you know, last year they were far and away the best team in the league during the regular season. That's not the case this year. Their defending has been pretty poor at times this season. They're currently in fourth place in the West. So, you know, they're going to make the playoffs, but they're not the same team they were a year ago. What's the story with LAFC from your perspective? I think that also kind of has to do with just missing players. I think for them, though, more than anything else has been the amount of injuries that they've had to face um, this season. You know, Atuesta was out for a little while. Vela is out. Apparently, you know, Bob Riley is saying he might get some minutes in. Um, and it's it's just, yeah, it's, uh, it's just been weird to watch because it, it that also seems like it's not clicking in the same way that it used to um but it, could, it also could just be you know the co you know what's happening with covid um they're not doing that bad and there's i think as an organization they're still young enough where you can kind of take it with a grain of salt they were you know supporter shield winners last season um, but it's it's been I, I think they've been OK enough to kind of like you said, they're going to make it to the playoffs. They're going to kind of pass by and and stuff. But I think a lot of it also has to do with LAFC just starting off so hot that now you're see, seeing them cool down that it's that it's kind of a disappointment. Um, but I, I don't expect them and people might get mad at me about this. Um, I don't expect them to necessarily um win it's it, like like get the title idol and i could totally be wrong um but it's it seems like COVID has worked out for some teams in a really great way like toronto and it hasn't worked out for other teams so i think lafc kind of like with la galaxy but still being in a positive direction have kind of had to face that weirdness of what's been going on this year yeah and i'm, I'm curious to see how long it's going to take for carlos vela to get back going again this was the guy who was the mvp last season had the best scoring season in league history and has been injured uh, since most of the restart here. Uh, didn't take place or part in the MLS's back tournament. Um, curious to see what 
his return will mean for the team. And now that Atuesta is back, like they really clearly missed him when he was out. He's one of those players who may not get as much attention, but uh, just tremendously important for LAFC. Um, like, is there a chance you think that we might see something like the opposite of what happened last year with LAFC, where like they were so good in the regular season and sort of crashed in the playoffs again, losing at home? Um, they've gotten this reputation as a team that's not a great playoff team, but is that fair? I think it is. I think to a certain extent it is because you will see them just just completely dominate certain teams and the rhythm's going really well and everything's working. And then when it comes to playoffs, uh, you know, they kind of just mentally, um, you know, something that I guess has always kind of been like the rock in their shoe is the way that LA Galaxy is able to dominate them even when they're not doing so great. Um, you know, and I and you kind of see that when they end up going into games that really matter, it, it all of a sudden it just seems like they're 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 losing out and they're not really, um, you know, fighting that much more for it. I mean, it, it could change, right? It could change. It, it, this is a crazy year. Anything could happen at this point. Um, but I think for them, th- this would be a good place to start. This would be a good game to kind of re- reassert that dominance. You saw it in the MLS's back tournament with that 6-2 win. Um, and then, you know, coming back from from that tournament in the, in the restart, they lost twice against LA Galaxy. You know, that was kind of the the shift where everybody was like, oh, maybe LA Galaxy can turn it around. Um, but then, you know, LAFC just, with Bob Bradley also making some questionable changes in those games, you know, a 2-0 loss, a 3-0 loss. Um, so this will be th- that opportunity once again, just like it is with, with um, you know, with these rivalry games for them to just um, show, okay, maybe Vela's not going to come back completely, but they will have the international players back after, you know, quarantine and, you know, having to make sure that they were um, okay to, to to return to the game. That it'll be a good chance for them to 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 re-show that dominance that we kind of saw in the MLS's back tournament. And, you know, so it, that's what happens in these rivalry games, right? LA Galaxy has something to prove by possibly winning, and then LAFC has to kind of show once again that they, they can be a powerful team. But it all depends... Once we once we move once we move into the playoffs, if they're able to you know to flip the switch and and get a little bit farther this this time around. Kind of moving on to the Mexican national team, which you cover closely. Uh, you're at the World Cup in 2018 in Russia, covering them. Um, they had two friendlies recently against the uh, I guess it was the the Netherlands. One nothing they won. Uh, that game in Amsterdam, and they tied Algeria, the African champion, 2-2 under Tata Martino. Uh, meanwhile, the U.S. men's national team will play its first close-to-full-strength game in about a year next month against Wales. Didn't play this most recent FIFA window. There's a lot of excitement among U.S. fans right now about the rise of these young Americans at clubs like Chelsea, Barcelona, Juventus, Dortmund, Leipzig. How do you think Mexico and the U.S. compare right now? Because the last three years or so, Mexico has clearly been better than the United States. But do you think that might have changed? I think U.S. soccer fans have a reason to be excited right now. And it's not something that has been lost upon the, you know, uh, the Mexican side. Tata Martino during a press conference was actually saying that it's really good to see that, that it's really good to see kind of that competition growing and acknowledging that they're playing um, in the best teams with the best leagues, I'm sorry, the best leagues with the best teams. Um, But it always, it it does always come down to when they end up facing each other, how that kind of works out, you know, kind of what we're speaking in that rivalry sense um, just earlier. And right now, you know, Mexico did, did win the gold cup against the U S and they did win that friendly in September of last year. Um, So, so it all, it always depends once they come up. I mean, uh, my good friend Tom Marshall just wrote a really great piece about, you know, should we be worried about the number of European players that the U.S. has over the over what Mexico has? And I think yes, but when you look at it on paper from when they face each other, um, Mexico right now has the upper hand. But And they do kind of have the upper hand, like you just mentioned, because of the two friendlies that they just had. Um, Chucky was unfortunately not able to to participate in those because of the whole Napoli situation with COVID. Um, But you did get excited to see what Tecatito could do, to see what Raul could do. Um, You know, and this is a Tecatito that also I know everybody's really excited about Dest, but this is also the Tecatito that was able to kind of, you know, do that nutmeg on Dest. And, you know, Pulisic was 
Pulisic was part of that, you know, 2019 team that lost against Mexico in the Gold Cup. So it always does come back to that. I know everybody was excited about like the El Clasico today too. Um, but Rafa Marquez also participated in one. And it, it's those little things, you know, that people don't remember historically. Um, but it does. At the end of the day, it always comes back to what they're able to do against each other. And I, for one, am always excited when it's good competition. And for me, you know, and I think for Tata too, I think he's he's been a a, a coach that has been that way, um, you know, changing the mentality on the team into kind of his direction. He also feels that way. So I think for him to look at all these players in Europe um, from the U.S. side and see what they're capable of doing, you know, whether you have Reyna, Pulisic, Tyler Adams, um, he sees it as a challenge. How, how better can I make my players um, for when those moments that we face off against them? One thing that sort of strikes me about Tata Martino is that he, the chemistry on his team with Mexico, and this was the case at Atlanta United too, very good chemistry on the team, seems to play well together. Um, and the individual talent obviously is there. I, a guy like Tecatito Corona, player of the year in Portugal, do you see Tecatito making a move to a bigger club somewhere at some point, given the success he's had in Portugal? He's a tough situation, too, because as as excited as you get, you also get worried because Tecatito historically has had moments where he doesn't play with the national team, not because he doesn't want to in a novella sense, but just because he has situations that are happening. So you kind of have that in the back of your head. Like, I'm really excited of what he's been doing in these friendlies, but will it actually translate to another national team? Um, performance uh, in a competitive play and for and the club situation he's kind of for me it's like if he's happy there and he's flourishing why change it it doesn't seem like it's hindering him in any sense when you see these friendly performances but it would be great to see him at another team right it would it would be great to see that challenge of I don't know a fast-paced EPL team or something like that um, so it's, it's a tough one, um, especially like you just said, when he comes off of, you know, getting, port, you know, it wasn't just player of the year for Porto. It was, it was player of the year for the Portuguese league. So that's a huge right. uh, moment because we've seen, especially with Mexicans abroad, you've seen where they move to a big team and you're excited and nothing happens just today. You know, Hector Herrera got no minutes for Atletico against Real Betis. Um, Lionez also, a, you know, prospect not getting not getting any minutes with Betis. Um, Raul is a situation where you know before he was also in Atletico wasn't getting that many minutes, and now he's flourishing at Wolves. So it's it, it is a, it is a it is a case by case situation. Um, I think at this point, if it doesn't hinder him, you know, he can keep going with Porto. But if somebody steps up and has a system where he can play and he can flourish, then yeah, by all means, let's see where he is um, for that next challenge. Who, in your opinion, are one or two emerging talents for the Mexican national team that you're most excited about, maybe still Mexico-based, who could be the next Mexican stars? Cordova over at Club America is definitely a good one. Um, he has a he has a lot of great potential. I know JJ Macias has kind of been rocky over at Chivas this season, but also a great one. Um, you know, I think I forgot who it was. Was it was it uh was it Dortmund that was looking at videos of him in like an Amazon Prime documentary? I don't, yeah. So, so so there's definitely, you know, Roberto Arbalado from Cruz Azul. So there's definitely good um, you know, prospect in a Efrain Alvarez would also be a good one. I know he's still kind of young, but that's also somebody you kind of look at with LA mm-hmm. Galaxy, um, especially in the situation that LA Galaxy is in right now. Um, I guess he's kind of, this is actually funny to bring up on your podcast, but I guess Julian Araujo can, mm-hmm. can, still, be a, can still be a potential one. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of, I think the other situation that Tom actually um, talks about in his article is one of the tricky parts about players at Liga MX is their, you know, their high price tags because it's such, you know, just the business that's taking place in Mexico um, makes it harder for like a European team to come and, you know, be able to grab them. Um, so that's another dilemma that we face. But as of right now, I would say like those players are are pretty good ones. Um, you know, Carlos Rodriguez over at Monterrey is also a really good player. Um, so there is potential. It's just a matter of how long we take to kind of export them over to Europe. That's always the, you know, the huge talking point that comes with these, you know, these prospects and these really promising young players. I know you cover the Mexican Women's League closely as well. And what are some of the things that our listeners should know about that league and how it works and how they can watch it if they want to? Um, it's super fun. 
I really, really love it. I think if you're diving into uh, women's soccer in general, you've you've learned that it's still exciting soccer. Um, so I would highly recommend catching those games. You know, if you're if you want to look at more domestic uh, leagues, uh, and hopefully it also means that these leagues, these uh, Liga uh, MX Femenive teams will one day face off against NWSL teams. So if you're definitely into NWSL, I recommend watching it just to get that kind of competitive juices going. Um, luckily, we're in a good situation where Tudene, um, Univision, if people don't know, um, is now called Tudene. You can watch some games there. Some of the teams stream their own um, games via social media. That's like um, Rayadas, Monterrey Femenil, Tigres Femenil. Um, Chivas has a good deal with Telemundo right now where they stream home games. So I would recommend um, watching there. And it's, it is, it's a really, really fun league. They deal with a lot of things that um, a lot of, you know, women athletes have to go through just to play the game. But when you actually sit and watch the competitions, um, it's so fun. It's so fun. <laughs> I really recommend you guys watch it. It's cool to see the, the rise. I mean, you say that the, the, they deal with some things. What are some things they're having to deal with? Oh man, so, so many. Uh, the biggest one is like the pay. You know, there's no exact. It's, it's without an exaggeration. Um, they probably some players probably get paid around two hundred dollar U.S. dollars if you convert it um, a month. You know, so that means mm. that they have to uh, have other jobs. Some of them are going to school full time as well. Um, so it ranges from like two hundred U.S. dollars. Uh, I think the most that anybody gets paid for right now in U.S. dollars. Um, is like $5,000, you know, so it's the, that in and of itself is a huge talking point. Um, one thing that just came out recently was um, Nicaxa Femenil only got like four hours of rest because they were trying to save money on like travel costs. So they like oh, wow. drove the, drove like the night before, like 9 PM got to, um, I think they're facing Puebla that game got to wherever they needed to get to by like 4 a.m. and then had to wake up four hours later to get ready for the match that was at noon. So there's a lot of, yeah, so there's a lot of these, you know, stories that come out and you see these players and giving it their all um, that, that it just proves there's so much more work left to be done. But when you actually get those exciting matches, um, it makes it that much more rewarding. So it's a, it's a lot of, it's a lot of fun, um, a lot of work to do, but it's still a lot of fun to to be able to watch these games. So like which clubs in Mexico are investing the most in the women's game right now? Well, the, the Liga Mex Femenil is a, is an infrastructure of the men's side. You know, it's part of the, the federation in general. So it is, it's those big clubs. It's America, it's Chivas, it's Monterrey, it's Tigres, um, you know, the, there's all of them are kind of doing their best, you know, like Mazatlan is doing really well, but it's, it is those big teams. It is those big teams that are investing the most that are creating positive results on the field. Um, and then sometimes you'll see teams that are able to um, bring a, bring a team, I mean, bring like a staff member from another team and really do great stuff, but that kind of affects that team you know something a big talking point that we've had this year is Cholos Femenil which was actually a team that was created before the league itself was created so they kind of already had this infrastructure going on at Cholos and right now they're in dead last um, the project's just not working the way that it used to um, but the the coach that actually got them to the playoffs last season Carla Rossi moved over to Querétaro and now they're in contention to make the playoffs there's still like five weeks left of, of playing but um you know, it's those kind of things that you kind of see when uh, teams want to invest and they get a, g- a good system in play, um, like you will see typically with the big teams. Um, you'll see that translated on the field. So it's it's definitely the big teams right now. You know, we already have four teams that have made the playoffs that I just talked about. Um, Tigres, Rayadas, Atlas and Chivas have made it. Um, but it, it is it's you still see, unfortunately, that kind of. um that kind of disparity between the big, big teams in Mexico and then the smaller teams kind of not getting that much investment. Have you seen any benefits so far for the Mexican women's national team that you would give credit to the the Mexican women's league for? I think what we've seen in the U17 and the U20 side, you can definitely give some of that. Um, these were players that in 2018 um, were able to be, uh, you know, runners up in that U17 World Cup. Um, but you know, no, the big, right now we're still waiting. We're still being really patient with what the senior side can do. And we're, 
unfortunately, um, something that we've been talking about amongst ourselves and, you know, the, just the women's Mexican soccer is the fact that there's not really anything happening for the senior side right now. I know the U.S. women's national team currently or had a camp recently, but there's like absolutely nothing, no news, nothing about what's happening with the Mexican women's national team senior side. Um, I know I know some of that has to do with the fact that um, like Europe doesn't want to give any of its players up to create a camp because of what's been happening with COVID. Um, but still we do have enough. I think we have enough players in the league MX or even like the NWSL if they're, if they're willing to let their players come um, to just have a camp, to just have friendlies, to just have something, even if they play amongst themselves um, just to see what's going on with them. You know, uh, that's something that we've been talking about a lot the men's side, like we were just talking about, already had two friendlies, already had mini camps um, or more more friendlies. They had a, one against Guatemala, you know, when they were here, uh, in Mexico and there's still nothing that we're seeing um, for the women's side, which is unfortunate because we have some really great players um, right now that are not young. Um, but in terms of like that, that the Liga Mex Feminine translating over to the senior side, we still have a few. We still have a little bit of time to go. We have a lot of listeners on our podcast here who are students uh, who want to get into the media business or people who are just curious about the media business. And I'm wondering, what's your story? Like, how did you decide you wanted to be a journalist? Um, so I got to, so I graduated from high school and I was accepted to a few schools, um, some as an English major, some as a journalism major. And I think when I got down to it, um, I was like, I, I want to do something with soccer. It'd be kind of cool to see what I can do with soccer. So I was like, I guess I'll, I guess I'll be a, like a writer, like a, like a sports writer covering soccer. Um, and I wanted to stay close to home because um, I got really scared after, after a little bit and I just wanted to stay close to home. So I chose USC, um, went to the Annenberg School of Communication and Journalism and focused on, yeah, broadcast journalism with a sports media studies minor. Um, and then kind of got lost like the first two years. I didn't really know what to do because I had never done like broadcast anything. Like we didn't have um, kind of an infrastructure at my high school. And there were kids who had come in from, you know, much uh, more affluent schools and they knew what like packages and stand-ups and VOs and all that was. And so I got, I got really lost uh, my first two years of college and then I got pregnant. Um, you know, well, I was pregnant during my sophomore year, but I, I had my son Jack um, in the summer before my my junior year of college. And so I was just kind of like, OK, I, I need to I need to do something because this kid is going to see a lot of my faults. So let me give him something cool to kind of um, enjoy about me. So I went back. And luckily, it was around that time, too, where you're done doing like your um, like your prerequisites or, you know, like your ge your general education classes. And so now you're focusing on what you're supposed to do. And I and I was lucky enough to have two professors that were telling us about how important, you know, the Internet was going to be and how important Twitter was going to be and everything. So he was like, you know, write a blog or create whatever it is that you want to do. So I can't I, I held on to that and I was like, OK, well, then I'll just start blogging about soccer, because in my mind, I thought nobody else is talking about Mexican soccer in English. <laughs> That's what I thought. Um, and then luckily enough, um, I think I've told you the story before, but I'll say it again. Um, I like searched on Twitter like Mexico World Cup and my good friend Tom Marshall popped up. And he covers Mex. He had been covering Mexican soccer in English at that point for like five years. So it, through him, I was able to find out who Viso Vasquez was and who Cesar Hernandez was, who John Arnold was, and just all these collective journalists that were already covering Mexican soccer in English. Uh, so I kind of just started following them, kept blogging, uh, you know, was following them, doing my school. Um, in 2014, I was able to get a contractor position with Yahoo Sports. And that was kind of where I definitively like I was like, oh, OK, maybe I can do this. Maybe I can do this. But when I actually got to sit around for six weeks with all these cool people and watch, you know, soccer and get paid to do it, I was like, no, this is definitely what I want to do. Um, so I did. I, then I just kept at it and I just kept going. And then luckily enough, the Mexican soccer show was looking for an intern and I applied and from there, it was just, you know, kind of doing my due diligence, doing the work that I had to do and um, kind of seeing the role um, to much grander than when you're just using social media, you know, as a as a person, you know, kind of seeing the role that Twitter took 
um, to kind of create that community and to provide that information for soccer. Um, and it's and it's been fun. And I've been able to run, you know, the social for the Mex Nation for the Mexican Soccer Show and just kind of build on that community and to build on, you know, the Leo Mex and community and the L3N community and they're very different ways to just see it um, flourish into what it's now being. You know, I mean, this year obviously has been defined in many ways by COVID, but it's also been defined by Black Lives Matter and and people asking, demanding uh, more diversity in, in every walk of life. And, and I, I think that people have been looking at that and asking those questions in, in soccer journalism too. And the fact of the matter is there's a lot of white men uh, mostly who cover soccer and sports in the United States. And there, there aren't too many Latinos or especially Latinas. And, and I'm wondering sort of from a diversity perspective, what do you think we can do to, to make that happen in, in a more significant way? Ooh, that's a that's a really good question. I th- I think if I'm gonna kind of be completely honest, it kind of goes full circle into how we started this podcast, right? It's like if you're gonna look at something specifically, you kind of have to look at it collectively to really get into it. And I think, you know, one of the things that I guess U.S. soccer in general has not to say that uh, Grant, you do a great job covering U.S. soccer, you know, and there's a there nice. is a lot of good. Um, you know, journalists out there that are doing a good job or or, or are bringing it up or are bringing it into um, what it can be. But it does help when you have those different voices um, or if you have that kind of different perspective to look at. And I think if we're going to look at, I guess, U.S. based or North American soccer, I think the NWSL is doing a really good job of just showing that collectiveness. And so if you kind of grab what's going on with that, with the Black Lives Matter movement, um, you know, what the players have been able to do in MLS, you know, showing that collective unity, you kind of also take that in to what can U.S. soccer media do? You know, uh, you know, you shared something a few months back where Jenny Chu was doing like an Orlando, uh, you know, was interviewing a player. I think it was Orlando City. Right. And she was translating yeah. on the spot. And it's just it's showing that it's like, give us more of that, because you do get that perspective that nobody else can really bring unless not necessarily been in it. But I think this year we've kind of, like you've said, right, you've seen you've seen people say that it's not it's not subjective to bringing your opinion. It, it just adds more to that story. And you're able to speak some truth to that story a little bit more because of who you are. And I, and I mean to say that with U.S. soccer, because. I think U.S. soccer as an organization has had a hard time trying to figure that out. We've seen time and time again how they do reach out to Hispanic, you know, players and then it doesn't quite work out. So then they prefer going over to the Mexico side. And I think that that kind of speaks to the issue that you that keeps coming up. Right. You know, why 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 is that effort not taken a little bit more? Why are we not trying just a little bit harder to try to bring in these people? Um, And I think that that's what ends up happening. You kind of and but I do think that it's that it's growing. I I mean, I know that they don't get they kind of make a joke about themselves. Right. But I think like the soccer cooligans. Right. That is that's Alexis and uh, Christian kind of giving not necessarily a a Mexican talking head, but they have that kind of Spanish language. And then, you know, you'll have Luis too. You'll have Jenny who is Mexican and you kind of just bring in more of those voices because that's, what's going to help. That's what's going to help drive that inclusiveness Um, that, that, you know, you kind of also kind of see, um, as a Mexican American, you kind of also see from the English language side, you know, you're you're kind of stuck between not knowing where to go because you don't know how to, or you do know how to speak Spanish all the way, but you don't really want to do, you know, fully sp- a Spanish language. But even though you speak English, you don't want to cover U.S. soccer specifically. Not that you wouldn't do it, but you know that maybe that's not what you want to do, and so you're kind of stuck in the middle of how do I keep pushing forward? How do I keep opening doors for myself? And I think that's something that U.S. soccer media can kind of also look at themselves. Like, are we opening enough doors to get more people um, that aren't just, you know, what we've been used to, um, to, to speak and, and get, provide us with news. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm totally with you on that. Um, one other thing that I wanted to ask you about is, 
just the challenges of doing what you do uh, as a single mom of two young boys. Like that's, I, I can imagine that's a lot to, to handle. Listen, do we have, like I said on, do we have like six hours to go through? <laughs> um, it is, it is hard. It's, it's a lot of compromise. I think that's something that we've all had to deal with, right? Especially right now. Um, but it is a lot of compromise to just, just try to figure out what's more important or what needs to be taken care of. I think especially with social media and especially with Twitter, where it's always happening so fast. You know, you kind of just have to figure out, okay, my son starts school at eight. Um, There's this game at 12, you know, but he has lunch for 50 minutes. How am I going to work this out? Um, So it's a lot of compromise. It's a lot of working with them. It's also a lot of just understanding that maybe I can't do this. Maybe I can't watch this specific game at this time. Maybe I can't live tweet at this at the rate that I would want to if I was at this game in person rather than being there. Um, Like I mentioned earlier, it's also unfortunately like I, I can't go to the games right now. I would like to, but I just can't because because do I really want to spend six hours, you know, in a booth where I don't get to go see the players? Um, I can kind of just do it at home. But doing it at home means I have to also, you know, possibly <laughs> deal with the kids coming in at certain points. You know, just right now, I was telling you, I had to give one of them my phone so that he won't bother me for like this time that we're <laughs> recording. So it's a lot. Of, it's it's a lot of compromise. But um, luckily, I do have support you know, when they're able to help me because we have a lot of busy, we all have a busy schedule. Um, So it's a lot of that. Sometimes you'll get Ollie having an appearance on another show that I'm on <laughs> and stuff. So it, it we just kind of run with it. You know, we just have to do what we have to do. And um, they're really good sports about it. So I, I'm thankful for them kind of respecting, you know, this chaotic uh, journey that I've decided to put us on because um, my oldest son is nonverbal, but my youngest son talks enough for all three of us that he'll be like, you know, Amy, do you have to watch the soccer game or Amy, do you have to work now? Um, and, you know, we'll we'll try. I'll try to compromise with them. You know, if I watch the soccer game, I'll get you ice cream. So it's it's a lot of that. It's a, it's it's fun when it's not a lot. Yeah, I, I enjoy following your social media posts because you include your kids and, and it's it's fun to sort of get uh, a sense of of what is happening in your journey on all of that. And I also like your soccer tweets too. Um, before I forget, I should uh, ask you to let our listeners know, where can they find you on social? Uh, I'm at Azteca Melia on all social, wherever you want to find me. Um, I even have a TikTok sometimes that I make little jokes about the Liga Mex Femenile if you're into that too. <laughs> She is Amelia Lopez. She is a Los Angeles-based writer, editor, and podcaster for Footmex Nation and the Mexican Soccer Show. Amelia, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Grant. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I can't tell you how much that helps. I'd like to thank Amelia Lopez, as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. I'm back soon with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time. Mm-hmm.